Welcome to the History of the Olympics. No, that's not the name of this. <laughs> well, <laughs> Olympic Size. I think you called it Olympic yeah, Size last yeah. time. <laughs> Welcome to Olympic Size, the podcast about the history of the Olympics. I'm your host, Bridget Natale, and with me are my delightful co-hosts. Uh, recurring guest, Frank Costello. <laughs> my mouth is full of bread. <laughs> and we her name... it, we'll fix it in post. <laughs> I'm sorry. You put bread in front of me. <laughs> Uh, my name is Sarah McSorley. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and her mouth is full of bread. <laughs> my mouth is full of bread. <laughs> Episode title. Check. Got that out of the way early. <laughs> bread shamed. I'm going to put more bread in my mouth, though. So. All right. Um, it's good bread. Um, Speaking of good bread, Paris. Yeah, Paris. Yes. Uh, good, good segue. That is called a segue. Yeah. Um, Would have been better if it was... Uh, not Italian bread, but the baguette. They didn't know <laughs> that. Know, they didn't that. know it. <laughs> okay. Um, so last time we talked about uh, the 1896 Olympics, which were generally, I mean, there were some stumbles along the way, but generally it was well run, um, well handled. And setting a precedent, I expect, for a number of very well handled, smoothly run Olympics to come. Is that not, not accurate? Why? What would make you say that? Um, I mean, not that we have 1904 on the horizon, which is possibly one of the most infamous Olympics, but before that we had 1900, and my personal subtitle for this episode was Bitchy French Nonsense. So, <laughs> so um, let's get started. Uh, the, and we're going to start with the Exposition Universelle. Pierre de Coubertin had always planned on having the 1900 Olympics in Paris. He had wanted them to be the first modern Olympics, but the IOC decided that it decided at their conference in 1894 that six years would be too long to wait, which is why they had the 1896 Olympics. So, uh, the Greeks, however, did not go gentle into that 108-year wait to host another Olympics because <laughs> that's how long it took for them to go back to Athens. Um, and they fought to keep them in Athens forever. Uh, the more de Coubertin resisted committing to this, the anger they got, he was accused of being, quote, a thief, trying to strip Greece of one of the historic jewels of her raiment. <laughs> I mean, it's not entirely unreasonable. The idea um, is based on a Greek series of games. I mean, the globalization aspect we talked about last week um, and the various different regional games definitely like makes sense, but I could see that being somewhat tense, especially from the Greek perspective. Sure. Uh, Do we know if they were particularly upset about where they were immediately moving the games to, or was this a general, no, sort of general I, concern? I don't think I, they didn't have any particular feud with the French at that point. They are about to. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, I mean, the Germans were kind of taking care of that for most of the twentieth century. <laughs> Um, but yeah, um, but Coubertin always wanted the Olympics to be an international event, and part of that was hosting them in different places around the world, for, from his point of view. He offered a compromise to the crown prince of Greece. They would host a version of the games every four years, set two years off from the Olympics, so 1902, 1906. That, so uh, the Greeks were satisfied with this, and held the intercalated games in 1906. Uh, however, this was the only time the intercalated games were ever held and their participation in the olympics at large was limited for some time as starting in 1897 they got involved with a series of wars with turkey Oof. yeah so um is the offset game something we're going to cover explicitly in this podcast you know i bonus content it, you know i might <laughs> um i wasn't planning on it but i think actually that eight, the 1906 games proves to be pretty significant it depends on how much research i can get on it it might just be a little addendum to 1908 sure so anyway because 1904 is there's already too much anyway uh the anyway with the greek problem settled de coubertin set about making the 1900 games happen he wanted them in paris 1900 specifically because of the exposition universelle it was the oh uh there's gonna be a lot of french in this i took high school german um, my French. I took high school Spanish. So between the two of us, we're good. Yeah, some we'll just combine it's our average pronunciation. Location. I went to France once. <laughs> we're done. This is it. We are experts. So um, uh, I'll I'll attempt the French words, but give you the English translations and and uh, you know anyway. 
the names I'm apologizing in advance. It was the fifth and final of the five, the Exposition Universelle in 1900, was the fifth and final of the five French international expositions, which were held in 1855, 1867, 1878, 1889, and then 1900. For some reason in like 1855, they decided to have five of them by the end of the century. So whatever, I, I don't really know what the thought process was with this specifically. So world fairs, and I'm gonna go into what this was because I think that's important, especially for this episode and the next, to understand world fairs. Um, because we haven't, we haven't, the United States has not been involved with world fairs in a long time. Like, um, North America has not been involved with world fairs for a while. Was the Seattle Space Needle not a world's fair construction? It was, yeah. And I, I'll mention that. Um, but yeah, they're now run by the BIE, world fairs are, uh, the Bureau International Day, or Bureau International Day Expositions, <laughs> Des Expositions, and they still have them periodically around the world, but there hasn't been one in the U.S. since 1894 in, or 1984 <laughs> in New Orleans. And the United States membership in the BIE lapsed in 2001 because we stopped paying dues. Uh, Canada has never held a World Fair and hasn't been a member of the BIE since 2012. Mexico is still a member, but has never held a fair. So this isn't a thing a lot of us in North America are terribly familiar with. <laughs> um, hmm. They were huge in Europe, and I, I, I guess they're still a thing. I don't know how, I don't think they're as popular as they were, though. Um, well, they used to give us things like literally the Eiffel Tower, correct? Yeah, So yeah. they can't be and, as big of a deal anymore. <laughs> yeah, and like the Space Needle and stuff like that. Yeah, um, space Needle's overrated. Yeah, the Space Needle. <laughs> Excuse yourself. <laughs> uh just to repeat what Frank just said, uh, he said the Space Needle is overrated. <laughs> it's a monument to retrofuturism, and it rules. <laughs> Basically, World Fairs were like a temporary Epcot. and by te Which also rules. <laughs> by, quote, temporary. I mean, they weren't permanent installations, but the fairs generally last at least six months to nearly a year. They usually ran the warmer months, so they wouldn't go over the winter. Um, but they'd go from, like, spring to fall. Um some structures built for these became permanent, like the Space Needle, which was constructed for the 1962 World's Fair. That fair uh, drew around 10 million people, um, by the way, so keep that number in mind. We'll talk about how many went to this Paris one. Um, the five French expos were designed to show off the glory of the French Empire. <laughs> um, they did, they uh, just kind of went for it in the Belle Epoque and like, you know, late 19th early 20th centuries it was like empire is great check it out well you got to get in as many world's fairs as you can before your global imperial empire sort of collapses it's <laughs> maybe they saw coming more than we gave them credit for yeah uh other nations were invited to have <clears throat> booths displaying the wonders and advancements of their own nations and colonies but the main point was how great france was there are really celebrations about the glory of the empire which just doesn't play as well as it used to <laughs> after like these empires started collapsing <laughs> like, uh -huh. um some fun things about the 1900 Exposition Universelle. It was the first appearance, and I'm apologizing to Parisians, the Grand Rue de Paris Ferris wheel, um, Russian nesting dolls, diesel engines, talking films, um, escalators, and the telephone. And Sorry, the tele said... telegraphone, which was the first magnetic audio recorder. You said that this was the first appearance of Russian nesting dolls, or simply mm -hmm. that they were featured prominently? Here? I think this was the first appearance of them. Hmm. So, 1896. And, um, let's talk about magnetic audio recorder. So that's like, if you've ever played around with a tape deck, and recorded on a tape deck, that's a magnetic recorder. Kids, tape decks used to be a thing <laughs> that could play back music. <laughs> or, um, it was like, voicemail, <laughs> but on tapes. That would fill up. All right, so <laughs> these booths that other countries dis so these booths that the other countries displayed things in, they were similar to the different country areas in Epcot, except this was like huge. This was like half of Paris. So you'd have the British Pavilion where they had a quote mock Jacobian mansion decorated with pictures and furniture. The German exhibit quote was held in a large tower resemble resembling a beer hall made out of wood and stained glass. And, quote, inside the tower, Germany presented the comfortable living of the country through the display of their passenger liners and their successfully growing merchant navy through the pictor pictorial reference of the scale model of the Rothsand Lighthouse in Germany. Um, so it wasn't 
But it wasn't just the European imperial powers who had displayed or were displayed at the fair. There were also the colonial exhibits, which it starts to get weird. Um, quote, included. Smarts. Yeah. Included in the exhibition were various ex exposition were various exhibitions of French colonies, particularly those of sub-Saharan Africa. These exhibits were used to exemplify African priv primitiveness versus French power, technology, and culture. When, when you say exhibits, do you mean like in a zoo? Human zoos yes. or miniature villages. Literally the next Literally. phrase was human zoos. That's where you yeah. happen to interrupt her. That's, yeah. yeah. Good, good so, intuition. Yeah. 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 Uh, human zoos or miniature villages with African people participating in, quote, authentic activities such as art, music, and military training were meant to educate and entertain the French public. So I'm hoping that there's a payoff to this where uh, Africa does very well in the Olympics and gets a bunch of medals over the French, but Wait we'll, we'll see if this uh, works out from a narrative I, perspective. Not, this isn't the Olympics. They're just bringing these people in to populate the, the human zoo. Yeah. They're just, they're just exhibiting them. They're, no, they're I, I understand this is unrelated to the logistics of the, the Olympics. I'm just really hoping for the turnaround where they get trounced in every possible event. They did not, yeah, they did not anticipate them competing. It's, but... it's a slow burn, but I think you'll be sad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, they had exhibits of the Malagasy people from Madagascar, Madagascar, sorry, the Dahomey people and the Senegalese. Quote, these exhibits largely aimed to display the most, quote, authentic African person, the most exotic and savage, next to assimilating groups in order to prove that the civilizing mission was successful. So wait, 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 wait. So there, was there like then a little room where they made like a French guy hang out? And like... And just, like, be really French? I guess. I. That sounds awful. I, this, this whole thing is so awful. It's, <laughs> it's like... It's just, like, that makes it more awful somehow. It's it's difficult to imagine exactly what this looked like because I, what I'm reading is... Did they, like, kidnap these people and bring them from Africa? Like, did they... Did, what did they do? Like, how much trickery was involved? I know they did this to, like, native, like, Inuit people. Yeah. In, the, in this, North America. I mean, yeah, this was a thing, and, and I'll go into this a bit more in, the, in when we get to 1904 because they make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> Everything that they Start do with here. human zoos, it goes downhill from yeah. there. 1904 was lit. They were yeah. like, let's go all well, the we, way. We Let's gotta be as racist as we can. We gotta get through 1900, because there are some really fun stories in 1900, <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, well, they were just starting out with racism. They were on the cutting edge. Yeah. Um, so, so these these human zoos, um, they generally weren't kidnapped as far as I've been able to find. It wasn't that sort of situation. Um, they were, I mean, coerced, I think, would, I, yeah, it would be I, fair. Um, I can't imagine that they had autonomy. Like, that no. this was the, the, nobody's, like, making the choice to, like, go hang out in France and, like, live in a zoo. No. <laughs> and, um. <laughs> it's sort of, it's sort of like how we put animals in zoos today. They're not really getting a choice about it. Yeah. Well, no, it was more like, I mean, they were technically paid actors, for the most part. I can't imagine they were well paid. No, no. And and the people making the money were the white managers. Shocking yeah. information. <laughs> and um but basically they'd sign these contracts to go on these exhibits and um then go home was the idea, but it generally didn't work out. I think for them. they made it home most of the time. And when they did it wasn't great. When they did, you know, it they weren't they weren't in the best of conditions. They no. weren't uh properly uh vaccinated <laughs> no say. that was a big yeah uh, i don't think that was a thing at the time yeah so that, yeah that's that's all a lot of that ended it was great it was it was just great everybody everybody won yeah that was good that was a good situation for everybody they were paid so it was fine yeah yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> the french public was often unaware of just how inauthentic the colonial exhibits were as they consisted of Africans who were paid to come from Africa to act in, quote, authentic African ways and were contained in artificial pavilions designed by Europeans. Well, I think they knew about the artificial pavilion part. No, no the camouflage they, was perfect. They brought, they brought that house from Africa. <laughs> this is what it looks like. So, the 1900 Exposition Universelle was ultimately run by a man named Alfred Picard of the USS. Enterprise. <laughs> um, 
It started on April 14th, 1900 and ended November 12th, 1900. Picard claimed the whole thing ended up losing money, but other accounts claim it made a pretty healthy profit. I have no idea. I'm not getting into, like, 1900 French bookkeeping. It can't be less confusing or more confusing than current box office revenue. Right, yeah. Or, or comic sales. Or just Picard <laughs> pocketing a whole bunch of money. Right. <laughs> um, the majority of the expo took place in Paris in an area with two large hubs connected by a thoroughfare along the Seine. If you look at a map of, of it from above, like an aerial map, it looks like a letter A. For Alfred. No, I have no <laughs> idea why. I have no idea why it was an A. But uh, my theory is it was for Alfred. Um, there was a satellite location in Vincennes, Vincennes uh, a suburb of Paris. I, w- I really should have looked up how to say that because this comes up a lot. Um the total attendance at the Exhibition Universelle was 50,860,801. There was nothing else to do. 801. Yeah. Oh. The most popular month was September, with 9,555,059 people showing up. And the most popular single day was October 7th, with 652,082 people. That is so many people. That is, like, more people than San Diego Comic-Con right. by a factor of five. I'm just still impressed by the accuracy of bookkeeping we seem to have about this. Yeah, but then we can't tell whether or not it made a profit. Because <laughs> <laughs> it didn't, and so they, they burned it. They burned all the evidence. They were like, I don't know, we have to keep doing this, I guess. Um, so, my next subject heading is, what went wrong? <laughs> <laughs> There's no what went right. Yeah, well, section to get to first? Are we putting that at the end, or we just don't have one? Um, I do have a section of, like, sports that went well. It's not as long as the one that where they didn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a few. Um, but this is about the um, what went wrong between the Olympics and the, the Expo. Uh, that relationship. So there were signs of trouble from the start. De Coubertin was dead set on having the 1900 Olympics in Paris during the Exposition Universelle. This had been a dream of his for decades since he went to, like, one of these ones when he was young. Um, but France didn't want them. <laughs> so, because Greece cause... wanted to keep them. France didn't want them. Nobody wanted them but the Greeks. <laughs> this story makes less and less sense the farther we get into it. But, no, he was dead set on this. Um, it's, it's one man's dream. The Fran- the and France didn't want them, and the French government, and the U.S. U.F.S.F.A. I'm only gonna say I'm only gonna s- spell out this acronym once. So, the U.F.S.F.A. stands for Union des Sociétés des Françaises Français des Sports Athlétiques, or Union of the French Societies for Athletic Sports. <laughs> Tried to talk him out of it. So the government and this uh, union try to talk him out of it. Eventually, he wore them down. <laughs> he's, he's just like, he's got that windmill and he's going to knock it down. Um, his plan, uh, de Cooperton's plan, was actually pretty solid, if completely over the top, and ignoring the whole nobody wants you here problem. <laughs> like, he wanted the Olympics showcased as the, at the expo as an exhibit like the American or German exhibits, there'd be the Olympic exhibit. He wanted to recreate the ancient Greek facilities, uh, the Addis of Olympia, temples, statues, gymnasia, and stadia, with art and information about landmarks and sports history, and the competitions that were going to take place there. Uh, He wanted to have the competitions all in one place together. As for how the competitions themselves would be conducted, there were amateur French leagues for all of the sports they wanted to have at as Olympic events, and they all had national championships, and a lot of them were planning to have their championships coincide with the Expo anyway, so what he wanted to do was expand those national championships into an international event, add a little pizzazz to the whole thing, and hold them at the Expo at the recreated ancient Greek facilities. Right, so, so just to recap, a little pizzazz means recreating the entire Greek facility of the Olympics. Yeah. So we seem to have the seeds already for the grand tradition of building a whole bunch of stadiums that immediately are never used or wanted again well i mean got in there early because greece wanted to reuse theirs like i don't think we had to hit a problem at this point no yeah like greece had well the greece built a couple things but the you know it was like uh they built the velodrome they had the track from like four thousand years ago that they were using but they also wanted to reuse the velodrome every four years Mm -hmm. so yeah um and eventually they'd build a pool so they wouldn't have to swim in the bay anymore (laughs) <laughs> that, look, that's a little 
overkill. The bay was fine. Uh, so, it wasn't completely unreasonable, other than maybe the cost of building the facilities. And he drew up plans for all of these buildings himself. I don't know if they were planned to be permanent installations, though, because like, remember, a lot of these World's Fair things weren't permanent. Like, they would build all of these exhibits and stuff and then take them down. So... Um, I mean, you say that, but we still have a Space Needle. Yeah, well, we All don't I'm take we could, rules. We, <laughs> we don't take everything down, but a lot of, like, that's all that's left from that. You the know monorail I mean? is still there. Oh, yeah, the monorail. <laughs> was the monorail built for the fair? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it was, I actually. Mm. That's why it only has one stop. This is not a, this is not a podcast about Seattle. We don't no, know. Let's move it on. Only, it only has one stop because that guy's an insane person <laughs> who wants to make more monorail tracks in the year of our Lord 2017. <laughs> All right. Um, but Main Street's still all cracked and broken. <laughs> and uh, de Cooperton drew up plans for all of these buildings himself. Uh, he had designed the velodrome that we just mentioned for the Athens Olympics, so he had some experience there. Like, he knew how to, to design uh, sporting facilities. So the problem all started with Picard and went from there. Alfred Picard was a conservative po politician who thought sport was a, quote, useless and absurd activity. <laughs> Same. <laughs> um, and holding an ancient sporting event at the expo was a, quote, absurd anachronism. <laughs> he didn't care about the Olympics. Why is it an anachronism? Because it's all about France and, and, and Fran where France is going in the future, oh, not ancient he, Greece. Oh. <laughs> I mean, retrofuturism and literally run a marathon, not necessarily in the I same. Mean, fair enough, but like. He seems to be mostly mad that it's not French enough. Yeah, that was a lot of it. And I don't know if Which... retrofuturism was a thing people were into in 1900. They were still doing futurism. Though. Yeah. Like... Retrofuturism in 1900 just meant, like, 1890s futurism, right? There must have been Oh, some... no, it's much more, like... It doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't know, honestly. Um... I did research sorry. on the 1900 Olympics. Not, <laughs> I'm not sorry that we're bringing future. our own like, human foibles and experience into this podcast. And uh, what's it? Um, talking about aesthetic movements that I don't know anything about. Um, well, <laughs> maybe content. next time. Maybe next time your research will be more more well rounded, and right. you can anticipate the weird rabbit holes we will want to go down. I think it's fair to ask us to bring that research to the table. No, next time, no, honestly. I'm just gonna talk out my ass about things I only halfway understand. <laughs> Um, yeah, so he didn't care about the Olympics. He resented de Coubertin's intrusion with all his grand plans. He thanked de Coubertin for his input and very carefully deposited all of his plans in the circular file. <laughs> but no, they were like, he's, the, the, the book was like, he delivered these plans to Picard. Yeah, nobody knows what happened to them after that. <laughs> they Kinda just like, they, went they, missing. They were in the same they're, place they're, as the accounting yeah, records. Wherever the yeah. profits are, that's yeah. where those plans went. Um, now, at the time, Vicomte Charles de la Rochefort. Foucault, Foucault, uh, polo enthusiast and friend of de Coubertin, was head of the USFSA. They were the ones who were essentially the French Olympic Committee, uh, the USFSA was. So they were the ones who would supposedly organize any French athletes going to the Olympics and also any Olympics held in France. A lot of these countries didn't have specific Olympic committees at this point. And also, there were no national teams yet. I mean, this is going to come up later, too. So you wouldn't try out for the Olympic team. You would just enter yourself um and then if you qualify if you made it through the qualifying rounds um you could compete yeah that is actually a question i had about the proposal to expand the national championship events for various things into the olympics how do they decide who wins the actual national event then does just the highest ranking frenchman in the olympic event get to take the national from the event that was previously scheduled that merged into the Olympics? Don't worry about it. I have no idea, and it doesn't matter because it didn't happen. <laughs> oh, okay. Spoilers. These questions. Yeah, spoilers, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so they were the ones who would supposedly organize any French athletes going to the Olympics, and also any Olympics held in France. So, de Coubertin himself was Secretary General of the USFSA, and his friend was the president of it. So the two of them were comfortable running the Olympics with the Expo and built a very knowledgeable and experienced organizing committee of mostly, no, like, uh, other noblemen um, and, uh, you know, athletics enthusiasts and people who had been involved with the IOC in, in the previous Olympics. However, the French government decided they were better suited to manage these things. After some strong encouragement, de Rochefoucauld stepped down from his position and de Coubertin did the same. 
although he would come to bitterly regret it, the IOC conceded control of the games to the French government, who formed a new committee to run it. There were widespread rumors that the IOC had completely dissolved. De Coubertin was enlisted to go to the other countries that it had already committed to participate in order to convince them to stay on. This was about as pleasant a task as you are imagining. So, like, a bunch of these countries, because they all had a really good experience in Greece, so when they're like, oh, we're doing another one, they're all like, yeah, 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 we'll go sign up. And then they're, like, hearing all this weird stuff out of France, like the IOC is apparently not a thing anymore, and are there even Olympics anymore? So de Coubertin gets to go to all these countries that had already committed to convince them to keep going. I really am imagining the Q&A, like, yes, question, uh, so I heard that the IOC dissolved. No, that's false. Okay, so you're still in charge of the IOC. Oh no, I've been kicked out. <laughs> oh, yeah, pretty much. Um, meanwhile, Picard put Daniel Merillon, head of the French Shooting Association, in charge of the French Olympic Committee. One of the first things he did was rename them. <laughs> Instead of the Jeux Olympiques, they were now the Concours Internationaux des Exercices Physiques et de Sport. You're doing it to yourself. You I'm chose trying. this. I'm trying. <laughs> you chose this to do. Um, Marilyn's interest in the Olympics and his commitment to the ideals of the Olympic movement were minimal. <laughs> <laughs> he organized the whole thing in such a way that it seems like he was either purposefully antagonizing the IOC or just amusing himself. Ice skating, for example, was part of the knife and fork exhibition. I'm sorry. <laughs> That actually makes a lot of sense to me with my second grade understanding of ice skating because you have knives on your feet in the I, event. Is that I, no, not accurate? I'm, I'm more want to know more about the knife and fork exhibition. Like, what is it like knives and forks from all over the world? Yeah. That's incredible. I want to go. Is that weird? Is that, I feel like that's normal. I want to see the weird tiny forks. I want to see the salad forks from every country. Especially like Victorian silver, yeah, where they had like a different fork for every food that you could eat. Fascinating. Are they giving uh, Olympic medals to the best knife and fork? <laughs> from... Are the are the Olympic medals knife and fork shaped? <laughs> um, <laughs> gymnastics and fencing were put into the same category as sports for school children. Again, I don't have any problem yeah, no, with that. That sounds fine. Yachting and rowing were part of, quote, Class 33 material of commercial navigation. Sure. They're mm -hmm, in boats. Mm -hmm. Fine. Yeah. And the Polo Club de Paris. Remember, the, the guy who was originally in charge of this uh, thing uh, was a polo enthusiast. And the guy who's in charge now is a shooting guy. Anyway, the Polo Club de Paris was part of, of quote, Class 107, Instructions for the Intellectual and Moral Development of the Working Classes. Can the work, were the working classes even allowed to play polo yeah. during the they, sensory France? If they could afford a horse. I thought polo was a really bougie sport. It's a really bougie sport. I thought it was sport. like maybe the bougiest sport. Like when people are making jokes about rich people. It's polo. It's polo related. Yeah. That's just mean. Everything the IOC had planned was scattered and renamed. None of the people who were originally involved in planning it were still involved other than de Coubertin in a drastically diminished role. The disorganization and poor communication frustrated foreign athletes and their organizations considerably. So I, I do have a follow-up question about the reorganization of the sports, as we were talking about. So so polo was, was moved down quite a bit. But the shooting enthusiast, I expected maybe he would introduce guns into a bunch of the sports. Is that not? <laughs> How, it doesn't oh. fit into the knife and fork category, uh, so where are they going to go? You can shoot knives out of guns. I don't know. Like, I... <laughs> We'll if you put me in charge of the Olympics, you will get all kinds of shit. <laughs> you, oh, we get all kinds of shit. <laughs> uh, but I don't know if we'll get to that till episode two with the shooting. Um, oh, yeah, um, that's something to look forward to. Yes, uh, Casper Whitney, a member of the U.S. Olympic Committee, said that the, what the French Olympic Committee didn't know about sports, quote, could kill, could fill volumes. William. Sick burn. Yeah. William Milligan Sloan, the initial IOC, IOC member from the U.S., called them, quote, an organization of incompetence. <laughs> so, of all the teams to arrive, it was perhaps the Germans who faced the worst treatment. I know I mentioned last time that they had boycotted, but I guess by 1900 they changed their mind about competition being, quote, on German. I have no idea what happened there. But almost none of those guys came back. So, but I guess what, however long the boycott lasted, it must have been at least a year or two, and that might have been enough for them not to be able to come back. You know, hmm. I, I have no idea what happened there. Um, 
Yeah, I even had my notes. I was not able to find any explanation for this. Anyway, when they got to Paris, nobody was there to meet them at the train station, and they had to find their way across the city to their accommodations, which were, by all accounts, less than ideal. Are we talking, like, the Russian Olympics less than ideal level? or? Uh, I, I think it's like we're still pissed about the Prussian War level mm. less than ideal. Um, so Ger- the Germans were not the o- Germany was not the only participating country, of course. In addition to them, and obviously the French, there were others, but there's asterisks all over this list. Because, again, like I said, there's no official Olympic team for any of these. Um, so, um, at this point, so this is, this is the thing. Because they changed the name of the sports, and they had all of these sports that were involved that we'll get to that oh, were... Oh, please tell me all the athletes were shuffled around into the wrong sports almost <laughs> at random. No, no, no. No, what I'm going to say is it's very, like, okay, so they, they, they mixed up all the sports, and they didn't call anything Olympic. Um, and then they had, like, really wacky things involved with, like, sports that we would think of as Olympic. Um, so reconstructing what was actually an Olympic sport at these Olympics is pretty difficult. And a lot of my research today comes from this book, uh, by Bill Mallon. Um, let's see here. It was the 1900 Olympic games. It's like all results with commentary, I think is the subtitle, but it's, it's by Bill Mallon. And he did a series of these. Um, and he was writing in like, I want to say, I have it on our, like the sources list, but it's like in 98 or something like that. He wrote this. Um, and he went through and tried to, to reconstruct what was actually Olympic. So what fit the Olympic criteria of like open to everybody, um, no professionals except for fencing, which we'll get to, um, <laughs> like, uh, no handicaps, which is not like a, not like a disability thing, but like, you know, um, when people are golfing, yeah. And they have, like, handicapped scores. Yeah, or rowing, the average age of the boat gets time saved off of their... Yeah, yeah. So so in Olympic sports, there's no handicaps um, because it's complicated and can get subjective and everything. And, um, but yeah. Oh, and, like, no motors involved. Like, you can't... There's no speed boating in Olympics or, like, you can't... There's no motorcycle racing in the Olympics. Like, <laughs> you know, it's all human-powered stuff. Is that still the case? As far as I know. Interesting. I mean, can you think of anything where there's like an elect, like some kind of If you can, you're thinking of the X Games. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always thinking of the X Games. <laughs> so, um, so when he was writing, there was no official IOC list of what happened here. There were like a couple handwritten notes from contemporary people. And then like later they're like, oh yeah, this person's an Olympic, Olympian, whatever. But at this point, and I could not find out when this happened. The IOC does have an official list now. So their official list for who who participated in the 1900 Olympics. Australia, Austria, Belgium, Bohemia, Canada, Cuba, Denmark, Great Britain, Hungary, India, Italy, Mexico, Netherlands, Norway, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United States. Bill Mallon also lists Argentina, Greece, Haiti, Iran as Persia, Luxembourg, which is a contentious uh, thing. Uh, Peru, Romania, and the, the Russian Empire. Other sources also list Brazil, Colombia, and New Zealand as participating. Also, arguably, Ireland and Algeria, as there were athletes from both places participating. However, Ireland was part of Great Britain at the time, and Algeria was controlled by France, so they usually lumped in with their colonizers. Um, Along with the change in name, the winners of the different events, again, did not receive the gold medal and bronze medals were used to. This time, winners received a silver medal, and second place received a bronze. Sometimes. Most of the events, the winners were awarded trophies or cups, which fell into the problem of a lot of the 1900 Olympians, not knowing they were competing in the Olympics. And... It's amazing. Spit take here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And also, a lot of a lot of times they're like people trying to say that like oh these none of these people were olympic olympians because i found out awarding cash prizes makes counts as like professional it's not amateur but what they found out later was that what what the the like um not dollar amount but um what was the old french money anyway Mm. the amount of money they were listing that they were listing the what the objet d'art they were given as a winner what that was worth Ah. So, 
anyway. And that was misconstrued as prize money? Yeah. Um, so, and sometimes it's not clear whether they got money or an object. So. Look, the accounting is very bad at yeah. this set of <laughs> yeah. games. We've already established. Is it so, just sort of like a case where, like, they had a winner, they looked around, and if they didn't have a cup to give them, they were just like, ah, here's some knives and forks. Um, <laughs> pretty much, I guess. Melt these down into a metal. Yeah. I, you did it. This yeah. is the prize. This yeah. is the official prize. You can't question us. Nobody knows what the Olympics are. Deal with it. So, the official list of sports that were played, archery, athletics, which we call track and field, uh, cricket, croquet, cycling, equestrian, fencing, football, uh, soccer, football, um, golf, gymnastics, pelota basque. Um, it po- was French. Uh, is that, that's actually Spanish. Um, Damn it. <laughs> so close. <laughs> it sounded foreign. Uh, oh my god, I'm going to hell. Polo, rowing, rugby, sailing, shooting, swimming, tennis, tug of war, and water polo. Polo and water polo. Yes. We really need both. Yes. Apparently. Sports that did not make the cut include ballooning, ice skating. Ballooning would seem to violate the no mechanical aid rule from earlier. I guess. I don't know. They had balloon racing, though. Um, Ice skating, firefighting, live bird shooting. No, go back. Firefighting? Yes. They had competitions with, like, firehouses and firefighting teams to see how fast they could put out fires. I do not recall this happening in the Greek Olympics. No, that didn't time. happen in the Greek yeah. Olympics. I'm so sorry. Someone... That is incredible. Yeah. Um, man versus fire. Yep. Sure. Uh, <laughs> firefighting. Live bird shooting. Pigeon racing. And running while... Wait, how is pigeon racing an Olympic sport? That's also not man-made power. Well, the pigeons would, would get the medal, not the human. <laughs> Little tiny pigeon medals. Oh, no, that's adorable. And then okay, they play fine, the, then. the pigeon national anthem. Oh, um, and <laughs> And running wild boar shooting. I'm not going to touch that one. But yeah, you guys just, just did not comment on the live bird shooting either. I, I mean, like, that's I mean, fine. They used to do that. Now they shoot like clay bird. ones because that would upset people if they did that on well, TV. Well, this, I think, was the only time they did live birds. I think they did the clay at the... Probably because there are a lot of, there are a lot of issues with working with live animals. Yes. Especially ones that you intend to murder. There were more... <laughs> there were more wacky sports. So many more. Seven months worth. But those were... Um, but the ones I listed earlier were the ones that made the IOC cut. I noticed I just, that that, um, was it called Flunkenball or Flogging? Yeah. <laughs> Again, not, that was never actually... Not on this list. Never actually an Olympic sport, just something that Bridget came up with <laughs> me, uh, on her own to torture us. Excuse you, that was Dwile Flunking? Dwile Flunking. Yeah, and you invented it, and if it's, I googled it right now, I wouldn't find an entry about it. It's very real. <laughs> God. I just lost my place. I just, right. Well, that's, it serves you no, right. Go, go back, go back to the part lives. where there's two polos and multiple kinds of shooting. Okay, I still am stuck on firefighting. Like, how did they ever decide that wasn't an Olympic sport? Why don't we still fight fires? I don't know. What if the fire won? You'd have to give it a what if we and it do, would melt. What if it's like a Bear Grylls man versus wild situation and that we just like man versus the earth? That's a what whole if, category of Olympic well, sports. We're win that. What if we fought fire with fire? I'm mad at you now. <laughs> there were 14 venues to hold all of these sports, and the capacity for each, quote, not listed on Wikipedia. That's because, as another example of his astounding attention to detail, Marilon never considered that people might want to watch these events. Well, capacity implies some upper limit, which is based on fire codes, generally, <laughs> and we don't really bring fire into these games anymore. We got rid of that uh, whole Again, thing. there was, fire, there was at fire at these games. Well, then you probably should have thought about capacity Wait, But they, they probably had the firefighters were there, like, doing the fire capacity thing. <laughs> no, but if there's a fire in a out. venue while that sport is happening and all the firefighters are over there... That's problematic. Yeah, this isn't that good. So, um, <laughs> most of the venues were in and around Paris, and a handful were in Vincennes. Vincennes. All right. Some of the more notable venues, the track and field, croquet, polo, and tug-of-war events were held in Bois de Boulogne, Boulogne, the second largest park in Paris. Most notably for track and field, the French didn't want to put a cinder track in the park, as those are ugly, so the athletes had to race over the uneven grass. (laughs) Sure. The area set up for throwing had a picturesque avenue lined with trees, which were soon stuck with javelins and discuses. (laughs) The swimming events were held in the Seine, which, even at that time, was extremely polluted. <laughs> However, they set it up that the swimmers would be swimming with the current, at least, which had 
an interesting effect on world records. All the records <laughs> are so good now, you guys. Speaking of records, all the Olympic records from 1896 were broken in 1900. Also, some world records. All of them. All of them, yeah. Because, despite all the nonsense, the expo was still such a huge event that they managed to draw a much higher caliber of amateur athletes. Mm -hmm. Also, at the time of the 1900 Olympics, there still wasn't the idea of a national team representing the whole nation, so the mixed teams were still a thing. And a bigger thing was that there were many more team sports at the 1900 Olympics. You remember that the 1896, I don't, I don't think there were any team sports other than gymnastics. Was there some kind of relay, relay swimming or relay running? That's a I don't team? think. Was it only the individual marathon? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, there were other running events, but I think they were right. all individual. Hmm. Um, also, nations could send, although they had mixed teams, so I don't know. Um, there were many more team sports at the 1900 Olympics. That's, I know. I, anyway, also, nations could send more than one team for a team sport. The biggest participant in this was France. But essentially, you'd have your archery team or fencing team or rowing team or rugby team or whatever, like your little munici the municipal team. And if you were prestigious enough, you could compete in these events, even if there was another rugby team from your country already going. So, um, at some point, the national team idea was instituted, but I don't know when that happened, and um, I'm sure we'll have something to say about it when it does. Anyway, at the 1900 Olympics, there were no opening or closing ceremonies, so even setting a date for when the thing started and ended is difficult. Uh, most sources identify the beginning as May 14th, 1900, as that was when the fencing competition started, which was the first of the IOC-recognized Olympic events. The end is even murkier and sometimes listed as October something, 1900, but was definitely over by November, as that's when the expo closed. I was going to say, what if they're still happening today? <laughs> I just don't know. Also, you just, if you go and throw a javelin in a park in Paris, you are participating. In <laughs> you get a knife and a fork. You should try it. <laughs> also important note, the 1900 Olympics permitted female competitors in a few sports. Uh, they oh, France. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of, one of the benefits of de Coubertin being kind of pushed out of the way was that his whole, like, I don't want women competing thing wasn't... Um, they kind of backed off on that a little bit at least. They competed in equestrian, sailing, tennis, golf, and croquet. Hmm. So the well-run events, this is what we're going to wrap up this episode with. Uh, some of the events that I have categorized as well-run are in this section because there aren't many records of them. <laughs> so Firefighting? So this is the no news is good news. Exactly. I actually events. wrote that on my notes. No, no like real news. talk, if no one died in a fire, then the firefighting competition was successful. And unless you completely destroyed the environment before the next team could come in, yeah. that seems like maybe a failure on your part. I guess. Anyway. Uh, the I one... still say you give the medal to the fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what if the fire wins? I don't know. Um, the ones that were disasters were fairly well documented, and we'll start with croquet. Croquet was not well documented because nobody really cared about it. <laughs> uh, however, three women competed in the croquet competition. Madame Filo Brohi, wife of Brohi. They had these, like, listed in, so. Um, sorry, sorry, say that name again, please. Brohi, B-R-O-H-Y. Like, Brohi, wife of Brohi? That was her last name. Her first name was Philo. Philo, wife of... Okay. Philo Brohi, in parentheses, wife of Brohi. That's how she was listed. The, when do the names not match? If you are I, John Smith, wife like, wife of Smith, like those names will always match. I don't know. Uh, Mademoiselle Marie Onier and Madame de Prix, wife of André de Prix. They competed alongside the men, not in a separate event, and are all listed in the Journal des Sports a daily sporting journal, and La Vie au Grandeur, a weekly sporting journal. There was one paying, paying spectator, an elderly English gentleman who was in Nice for some reason and went to Paris to watch the opening rounds of croquet. He didn't even watch the end. So, just to clarify that as well, one paying spectator and no unpaying spectators? Yeah, there were people... Oh, no. Um, they had, like, their coaches and trainers or whoever and people but, involved but with the club. anyone not involved with the sport or team had to pay admission. Yeah. And one person did. Yep. And did not watch the end. 
Yep. I mean, Crooked is very boring. I mean, well, yeah, but I'm not. I'm not like judging that guy. Like, obviously, he's no, like, he, oh god. He just watched the opening rounds. <laughs> this is enough croquet for me. I'm out. Uh, croquet was one of the earliest competitions at the 1900 Olympics, making it the first Olympic sport that women competed in, at least in the modern games. Mm. I don't know exactly how it worked in the old ones. Um, cycling was very popular at the turn of the 20th century, and the cycling event was generally well run. It was held at the Velodrome in Vincennes, and most of the events were deemed to not be Olympic as professionals competed and or they were handicapped. As a result, only two of the events, the 200-meter sprint, or 2,000-meter sprint, and the 25-kilometer race are considered IOC official, although a number of historians and organizations also count the Corps de Prime, the points race. Uh, French cyclists swept the 25-kilometer race and took gold and silver in the sprint. An American, John Henry Lake... Well, silver and bronze. Yeah. Um, or not even, because I think they didn't get... I think only the track and field guys got medals. Anyway, an, Olymp- an American, John Henry Lake, won the bronze in the sprint. Oh, this is the same thing. They did this in the 1896, too. Um, they didn't give them gold, medal, and silver... Or gold, silver, and bronze medals. But when we talk about them now, we talk about them as... Because ah, sure, sure. that's essentially what they were um the points race is actually pretty cool to watch if you know what's going on so this is i'm gonna explain a sport to you guys so oh i didn't sign up for this it's like it's it's just a paragraph um so the rules shift a bit with where the race is happening but generally they're going for some number of laps around the track and whoever wins the most laps earns points so it's not whoever finishes the race in front it's how many of those laps along the way did you rack up a win in? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you also earn a lot more points for lapping everybody. So if you manage to lap everybody, it's like uh, catching that thing in Quidditch. What is that? You guys don't... There are other books. <laughs> yeah, there are other books, but you know what I mean. Like there's yeah, like that one it's little the golden thing. Snitch. The That's golden snitch. The golden snitch. Yeah. To. If you buy that, if you if you if you manage to grab that, you get a lot of, of points. Um, so if you manage to lap everybody in the points race, it's like that where you get a lot of points. Um, but generally people don't try for that. They just try to consistently win laps. Um, at the end of the race, all the points are tabulated. The winner is determined that way. This event hasn't been an Olympic event on it all on its own for a while, but lately it's been part of the Omnium, which is like the cycling all around. So they'll do a bunch of different cycling events and this is one of them they still do for that, but you won't get an individual medal in it. Anyway. At the 1900 Olympics, the race was five kilometers, or ten laps around the track. The winner of each lap got three points, second place got two, and third place got one. In the final lap, all of those were tripled. So you'd get nine points if you won the final lap, etc. So the winner of the final lap got nine points, second place six points, and third place three points. I don't know what the point value was for lapping everybody. Usually it's something ridiculous, like 20 points, but as far as I can tell, nobody managed to do that at the 1900 Olympics. So whatever the point value for that was isn't all that important um enrico brussoni of italy won the points race carl doyle Doyle of germany came in second and louis trucellier of france came in third trucellier would later boast the greatest career cycling record of any cyclist competing at the 1900 olympics he would go on to have oh i repeated myself uh he won tour de france in 1905 and was third in that race in 1906 he won paris roubaix in 1905 and was second in 1909 and third in 03 and 07 he was second at paris tours in 06 and 1910 and he was second at milano san remo in 1911 so he he came in third in that one but uh he kind of that was like the start Hmm. (laughs) um and while the ioc does not recognize brussoni's gold medal in in the points race the italian olympic committee does (laughs) uh the italian olympic committee is also the IOC. It's part of the IOC. The, but the, the letters are the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the IOC asterisk. Yeah. <laughs> fencing. Fencing was also generally competently run. Fencing was fencing was the sport of the elite in 1900, which might have something to do with it. They had epée, foil, and saber, and I'll break these down now. So I got a little bit deeper into the difference between these. Foil, like I said last time, is a fencing sport where only the tip of the sword is used to score points. It's called foil because back in the day, fencers would blunt the tip of their sword with foil to practice. Um, Foil swords are more flexible than epée swords, and the target area is the torso, groin, 
and the lower part of the bib of the mask, so it's just kind of like the center of your body. Hits on arms and legs and the upper part of the head don't count. This was developed by military officers and the limited target area was designed to discourage disabling wounds. Uh, foil is considered more artful than saber or epee, and as such, the matches are not just determined by points, but also who looked better doing it. <laughs> nice. At least at the 1900s. I don't know if that's changed in modern times. There was no scoring rubric used. The judges just decided as they went. Um, the saber uses the tip and the blade of the sword. This fencing style is based on the scimitar, and the target area is everything above the waist. I think it's the most fun to watch but generally considered the least refined of the fencing events. It's also sword fighting, so yes. refinement is not necessarily the yes. goal. Epe was Again, developed... we're in France. Yeah. We're in France. Epe is interesting. Epe developed in the 1880s because of dueling. Duels were usually fought to, quote, first blood, not necessarily death, so only the tip of the epee is sharpened, and it was designed... It's, and it's a very thin blade. It's designed to cause tiny cuts that would bleed but not kill. The target area is the entire body. The blade of the epee is the heaviest and stiffest of the three sword types. Dueling is still popular among the European elites in, in 1900, or was still popular among the European elites in 1900. I, I thought we were going somewhere yeah, much darker. I was like, uh, interesting information. Year 2017, dueling, very popular. Um, in fact, one of the fencers, Jean-Joseph Renault, made his living arranging duels. <laughs> so he was one of the pros. Renault was technically a professional fencer. Professional fencers were permitted to compete in the Olympics as they were considered, quote, gentlemen athletes. Most of the pros just taught fencing. They weren't competing in front of crowds, you know, a paying audience. Um, but really, the reason why pros were allowed was because of what a huge draw fencing was. De Coubertin knew he'd have to allow professional fencers to get the best fencers and thus drum up interest in the Olympics as a whole, particularly with people with money. <laughs> Do we know if the... Um... Epe matches in the Olympics were also to first blood in the way that they are during gentlemanly duels. No, no, they they didn't. They weren't. They were padded even mm -hmm. back then, um, and then they would judge based on who hit. Um, so you'd have like your refs keeping score. The fencing events were foil, foil masters who were the pros. Epe, epe masters, saber, saber masters, and epe masters and amateurs where the pros and the amateurs dueled each other. The French swept foils, foil masters, and epee masters. Most notably, Albert Robert Ayat won gold in epee masters and epee masters and amateurs. The spoilers who kept the French from sweeping the other events were Siegfried, Siegfried Flesch of Austria, who won bronze and saber, and Raymond Fonst, who won gold and epee and silver, uh, gold and epee and silver in epee masters and amateurs. Um, no French fencers meddled in saber masters. Gold and silver were taken by Antonio Conte and Italo's, Italo Santelli, both of Italy, and bronze went to another Austrian, Milan Neralic. Fonst is a pretty cool guy. Uh, Fonst, the Cuban gold medalist, was only 16 when he won these medals. He was the first Cuban and first Latin American to medal at the Olympics. Um, Ayat, who defeated him in FA Masters and Amateurs, was 25 at the time. And I think, I said we'll be hearing more about him in future episodes. I think I mean Fonst. But Fonst was a Cuban who was like sent to boarding school or something in France. And hmm. that's where he learned to fence. And then he went to the Olympics and he represented Cuba. And I was just really super impressed because like all of this was being judged by uh, French judges. And he won gold in a very prestigious event so um anyway. and he won silver in against professionals so at 16 anyway do we know if um fencing is a sport that people age out of at relatively young ages is this like a, you peak at 21 or no i think i think fencing is one that you can do for a while um so 16 is doubly impressive in that case yeah no he was very young um he's not the youngest uh, gold medalist at these games we'll get to that that's that would be the six-month-old baby who <laughs> went into the rifle shooting it, when we get to the rowing that's when the young ones six-month-old baby <laughs> who was put in a boat with the rowing crew pelota basque was sparsely attended in the event that and the event that was more like american style handball was canceled but other than that no major disasters france beat spain that's all i know about <laughs> that 
Rugby had an actual round-robin tournament between three nations competing, France, Germany, and Great Britain, although not all the planned matches happened. They were supposed to take place over the second half of October, with France v. Germany on October 14th, Great Britain v. Germany on October 21st, and France v. Great Britain on October 28th. However, the Great Britain v. Germany game was cancelled, and the teams couldn't afford to stay in Paris for the entire two weeks the three-match tournament was happening. So Germany came in for the first one, and then they left, and then Great Britain came in for the other one against France, and France was the only one who were able to stay the whole time. Uh, rugby was actually the most popular event with spectators, not least of all because there was some place for them to sit. <laughs> Sorry, so just to clarify again, the sport where the teams had to bail early is in the list that went well. Yes, because um, they actually did, they had the whole tournament and um, they had 6,000 spectators watching the France v. Germany game. The rules were a little different from how rugby is usually played now. A try and a healthy and a penalty goal were both worth three points. A conversion was two points and a touchdown was four points. Uh, De Cooperton set up the rules for the tournament as he had been a big fan of rugby ever since the visit to the rugby school we talked about last episode or first episode. Um, France won gold. Germany took silver. Great Britain took bronze. Another interesting first: the first black athlete at the modern Olympics and first black gold medalist was on the French team. Constantine Enrique de Zubiera played for France. Later, he would become a doctor. There's a picture of him in Sports im Bild, a German sporting magazine. Hmm. So, there wasn't any sort of prohibition on black athletes or athletes from uh, non-Western countries. They just the cost was prohibited, um, and they weren't really promoted there as a thing. Um, I'm sure they weren't sending uh, De Cooperton to go solicit. Uh, African countries no. participate in the wake of the IOC dissolvement. No. So soccer. The soccer tournament was largely unremarkable. Great Britain won gold, France silver, and Belgium bronze. That's okay. No one cares about soccer. We can skip this part. Yeah, tennis. Tennis was another sport that was well organized and women were permitted to compete in. There was one hiccup before the event started, though. They didn't actually have a confirmed venue until July 1st, and the tournament started July 6th. At the last minute, the Ile du Puteau Club agreed to host the event, thanks to their club president, Viscount Léon de Janze. Though there weren't many competitors, the one who showed up were some of the top tennis players at the time, particularly the women. Of the men, the dominating favorites were the British Docker Doherty brothers, Reggie and Laurie. They advanced through the rounds with little difficulty, but refused to play against each other in the final because they said they only did that for, quote, major events like Wimbledon. <laughs> Your Olympics is too small scale for us to play uh, tennis mats with each other. Yeah, well, because they're brothers. They don't like to play against each other, I guess. Um, Reggie withdrew and Lori won the gold. They played as a pair in men's doubles and won easily. The women's tournament was much more competitive. Charlotte Cooper, Wimbledon champ of 1895, 96, and 98, was there. She was noteworthy for her volleying skills, which were still rare in women's tennis, and her habit of serving overhand. So I guess usually you would just serve underhand and then not really volley very much. Is that not, and I'm not an expert in tennis, is that not the entirety of tennis? What, t volleying? Like the... Well, I mean, the first thing is getting it over the net. Okay. Um, I think, and I, you know, I was thinking about this later. I think one of the reasons why volleying wasn't too big a thing is that these women were competing in corsets. And you're not going to be running back and forth all that much if you can't Ah, uh, see, breathe. that's a detail that I did not actually... Uh, no ahead of time yeah. so the the uniform of this sport was a corset um i mean there was more to it than that but yeah that was involved <laughs> and um like an ankle length skirt and long sleeves i i understand now why volleying is not a part of women's <laughs> tennis circa 1900 yeah um also in attendance was marion jones american champion of 1899 and 1902 and Helene Prevost, widely considered to be the best female tennis player in France, and Hedwiga Rosenbaumova of Bohemia, the second best player in Eastern Europe. Uh, Charlotte Cooper won gold, Prevost won silver, and Jones and Rosenbova both won bronze. So they, they did this thing, like there are a lot of events where that's how the, like you'd have a first place, a second place, and then two third places. For a lot of these like tournament style and i'm not really sure how that i believe that that has to do with the way they structure the tournaments in that um the two people who get to the final mats 
both beat their respective semifinal opponent, okay. but those two opponents didn't ever play each other, so you aren't sure which one okay. is better. Okay, yeah. So so that's a lot of these things, and I say there were um, two, like, two bronze medalists. That's how they did it. All right. There was no women's doubles competition, but there was mixed doubles, one man and one woman. Often... Did they, the men also have to wear corsets? No. Often they would be from different countries as well. Cooper took the gold in this with her partner Reggie Doherty. So the, the, the brother who didn't win the gold in the men's singles won the gold in the mixed doubles. Um, Provost won silver with her partner, Harold Mahoney of Great Britain. Marion Jones and Laurie Doherty took one bronze, while Hedwiga, Rosenbova, and Archibald Warden of Great Britain took the other. And that's about it for the well-run events. Croquet, cycling, fencing, pelota basque, and tennis. And, uh, you know, next week, or in two weeks, when we come back, we'll start with the rundown of nonsense. 